You're listening to WCOMLP 103.5 FM Carborough and Chapel Hill. It's a Tuesday, it's five o'clock, and that only means one thing. It's time for another round of Snarky Faith with your host, Stuart Deloney. This is a space where we irreverently wrestle through life, culture, and spirituality, all with our heads in the clouds, our tongues in our cheeks, our hearts in our sleeves, and our feet on the ground. At Snarky Faith, the questions or even the answers are never the point. It's all about the conversation. So here's your host, Stuart Deloney. Well, good afternoon and welcome to another round of Snarky Faith Radio. I'm your host, Stuart Deloney, and welcome here for another week at Snarky Faith Radio. So, just want to go ahead and just throw this out there that I'm already in a weird headspace today. And my weird headspace actually will be factoring in prominently <laughs> to what we're going to be talking about today on the show. Couple things, couple things, couple things. So one, I am recording the show uh, on Martin Luther King Day, a day where we honor the work and the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So, so we have that. At the same time going on here in America, we also have a rally that is happening in Richmond, Virginia on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. We've got a gun rally, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, because we're going to be talking about Martin Luther King today, especially in the, in the realm of faith and nonviolence. So on this day that we're supposed to be honoring the civil rights icon who was killed by a gun. So that's happening because gun rights activists are pissed off about new potential gun regulations that are being pushed through in Virginia. Yes, why are they mad? Uh, well, Trump is also fanning the flames of this because that's what he does. But on top of this, they're upset saying that the government wants to take away their guns. But these regulations are not even about taking away guns. Here's what they are. Uh, universal background checks. Ooh, ooh. Wait, what? They're upset about background checks? All right. Uh, they're upset about a ban on uh, military-style rifles. Okay. And uh, this also bill that would allow authorities to temporarily take guns from people deemed too dangerous to themselves or others. Now, I'm assuming they're upset about it because if you've actually seen any of what's been going on in Richmond where you see people that look like they're from, I don't know, like cosplay militia marching around with rifles uh, in fatigues, yeah, yeah, this is, this is, these are maybe the people that... <laughs> <laughs> they're upset that people want to take away their guns because on a Monday, they're out ma marching around in broad daylight in Richmond looking like they're part of a militia. Yeah, yeah. To me, I think that all sounds fairly reasonable. None of it sounds like they're abusing your Second Amendment rights. Uh, background checks, that's fairly solid. I think most people would agree that, hey, actually enforcing universal background checks on buying guns, not a problem. Uh, ban on military-style rifles. I understand where a lot of folks that somehow like to blow crap up may be upset with that, but also I feel like that's pretty reasonable too. Uh, why do civilians need to have military-style rifles? That's a whole different show. And then what? So authorities could temporarily take guns away from people that are too dangerous to themselves, suicidal, or others? 
Psychopaths? What? No, yes. <laughs> I think these are all fairly reasonable, but, but we're not dealing with reasonable people. And again, this is kind of why we're in this weird headspace. Why today? Why? Why, why, why? On Martin Luther King Jr. Day. You want this to get even weirder? Oh, we're going to get weirder because because of this day, and this isn't even hitting on the Christian crazy today, so, ah. Uh, well, another bit of news that happened today was saying in, in impeachment news, Kellyanne Conway, the mistress of all lies, um, the woman that somehow does not know how to say anything that's truthful whatsoever, the queen of spin, um, has also said that Martin Luther King Jr. would have opposed Trump's impeachment. Because today's, like every other day in America, is all about Trump when you're part of Trump land. Yes. And so we're going to be talking today, giving you just a little bit of an overview. We're going to be talking about peace, nonviolence, and Martin Luther King Jr. Um, we're also going to be talking about that in retrospect to a story that happened back before the end of the new year with a uh, shooting in a church. And this idea that churches now are thinking they need to start having security and armed guards and why, I'll go ahead and save you. You can quit listening to the show right now. <laughs> That's pretty much anti-biblical and has nothing to do with being a person of God uh, in a church setting like that. It's kind of ridiculous. It's disgusting. And it's insane. Want to argue with me on that? Well, hang on. <laughs> You'll have plenty to argue with me about in the rest of this show. But before we get to that, and before we get to <laughs> before we get to anything else, we need to go ahead and hop in on the Christian crazy because what I've already mentioned today ain't crazy enough. Oh, it's going to get worse because this is the world we live in. And here's where we're at. So without further ado, let's get to the Christian crazy. Claude Hammers. The Lord is my shepherd. He know what I want. So keeping with the fact that we are living in some sort of bizarre oh, world that's uh, ruled by Trump, which that's where we're at right now, um, this, this is a state of multi-level just weirdness that we're going to hit into. I just, I don't know. I don't know if it's my headspace. I just don't know if this, all the stories are weird and bizarre today. But maybe, maybe that's just where we're at. That's just where we're at here in 2020. 2020, you were supposed to be better than this. <laughs> we're only, we're only, we're only a little ways into 2020 and shame on you. You were better than this 2020. Get your act together. Clean it up. This comes from an article uh, from uh, deadstate.org. Uh, you know what? I'm going to read you the title. I'm going to go ahead and just read this. Mm -hmm. The blessing of a Bible at the National Cathedral Sunday has drawn outrage from prominent religious freedom groups. Now, what happened here? Mm -hmm. So they actually had the blessing of the official Bible of the new U.S. Space Force. So, hold on, a couple things there. So that we needed to have a blessing of the official Bible of the new U.S. Space Force. Space Force. Space Force. That's a thing that I'm even talking about. Yes. Thanks, Trump. Space Force. Um, and on top of this, uh, forget anything about separation of church and state, that we need somehow an official Bible that needs to be blessed for Space Force because in space, no one can hear you recite scripture. I don't really know how that works. But, but, 
But this is really, really bizarre. And it gets even ickier, especially when we're dealing with Trump and Space Force. So where do they get this Bible from? Well, the King James Bible, of course, always the best, uh, that is to be used, was donated by the Museum of the Bible, uh, which is a private institution in Washington, D.C. And, 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 you want to kind of figure out, oh, look, it's coming from a Bible museum. So who's the chairman of this Bible museum? None other than Hobby Lobby President Steve Green. Yes! Okay, so again, Hobby Lobby, crazy Christian on the right. That's why this is in here. Space Force, why? And why do we need an official Bible to swear people in for their duties at Space Force? Because also, separation of church and state, uh, folks should be able to... Well, whomever will be in Space Force, I don't know if we're going to be worried about their salvation, but no, I would hope that they are, they are, they are good and apt at their jobs. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, we needed an official Bible for Space Force, and of all the Bibles we're using, we're going with the KJV. That's a whole different topic, a whole other rant, a whole different story. There's so many things within this. This is just so profoundly weird that we're also talking about this now. So you want to continue to talk about Profoundly Weird. We got another story coming up, and I've got, I've got lots of questions. Every once in a while, I, I, forget, I forget about these, I forget about these broads for Jesus. And by that, I mean the conservative Christian group, One Million Moms. We only hear about them every once in a while when they kind of get their, like, their granny panties in a wad, and they're upset about something that's going on. Now, what are the million moms upset about? Well, they're upset about Burger King. Uh, because in a new Impossible Whopper commercial, someone says the word, damn. Damn, that's good. Moms are very upset about this. They're very, very upset about this. They are fed up, quote, fed up, <laughs> with the filth many segments of our society, especially the entertainment and media are throwing at our children trying to get us to eat fake meat, using the word damn, where is this society going to? Again, million moms, who are they? Who are the million moms? Well, you know what? They're kind of a sister group of the American Family Association, which has also been classified as a hate group. So again, yay, conservative Christian moms. Are there a million of you? I'm not really sure because so far, the petition they've started to have Burger King's commercial removed. Removed. My faith is on the line because of this commercial. They only have 8,500 signatures so far. I think they need to change their name. I think back in the day, you may have gotten a million evangelical moms riled up. But now, 8,500? Eh, I don't think you're living up to your name. Forget Burger King. This is false advertisement, million mom march i don't know million moms so this is this is what i get when we have groups like this and in the, the million moms have been around for a while or there's a bunch of other ones where uh essentially in in public if if you were to see the actions of what they are doing kind of like let's like extrapolate and like like figure out what this means so essentially christians are here to simply just be offended by culture and to get petitions to have culture pieces of art or commercials or TV shows or music or movies or anything of the like taken away because people are not happy because it exists. Uh, yeah, we've seen this with music and video games and all sorts of other things. Uh, we also saw the Million Moms being really upset recently 
uh, in the Christmas season about a Hallmark Channel ad that had a lesbian couple kissing. Oh my gosh, you're making, you're ruining, you're ruining my Hallmark movie experience. But if you're already watching movies on the Hallmark Channel, I mean, movie experience, that's not really like, I don't know, I mean, I feel like you've already kind of defiled yourself. You've already defiled yourself. So having a commercial with two women kissing or having someone say, damn, that's a good burger. Really? Really? This is how your faith is being walked out nowadays, moms? Mm, mm, mm. It's kind of telling if really, like, Jesus died and created this entire movement for you just to be offended and create petitions. I'm pretty sure that's in the book of James, something about when you are angry, create petitions. Because that's a thing. But we're going to be talking about this. Not them specifically, but this idea of really what we boil our faith down to in situations like this. Uh, especially, we're going to be hopping into a couple different topics today, too. Especially, I mentioned earlier about um, mass shooting. But let's go ahead and see how... Well, how, how Tony Perkins, who's part of the Family Research Council, again, very, very conservative Christian group on the right, um, who have also been at times classified as a hate group. Uh, maybe not at times. I think they pretty much are a hate group. Um, but what Tony Perkins is doing, who's, who's a very big supporter of the president, um, he's, he's doing an interview with David Klossom, which is the Family Research Council's Director of Christian Ethics and Biblical Worldview. So this guy, he's got it all. Christian Ethics and Biblical Worldview. Wow, that's a mouthful. So he's their director of that. Not sure how you get that job. But, so in this conversation, they are going to be justifying, justifying Trump's targeted killing of the Iranian general. And they're wanting to lay out this idea that it is biblically justified. So what we're doing here is I, I'm going to kind of break this down a bit through what they're talking through. We're going to be we're, we're going to be going through their conversation, kind of bit by bit, and then uh, we're going to use that to transition towards talking about guns and churches, and then from there, we do another tangent towards Martin Luther King Jr. But they're actually all going to be part of this same conversation that, especially on this day a day that is meant to be able to honor Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, we are going to be talking about the ethic of nonviolence and, and how Jesus modeled nonviolence. Jesus modeled a different way, a kingdom way, to be able to walk out our faith in a broken and violent world. We're going to be doing this and I'm still, you know, at the same time as I'm recording this, where people, yes, are still walking around Virginia with assault rifles um, because they can, because they need to. Yeah. And I bet you a bunch of those uh, are part of the 81% of evangelicals that uh, supported Trump. So we're going to be kind of putting faith in check today and talking through what does a a correct ethic look like uh, when we, in regards to to death and violence and murder and guns and all of that, in this weird place we're in right now in 2020 here in America, where 
a very large swath of Christianity is okay with the president that is vile and disgusting. Um, million moms voted for him, but they get upset when someone says, damn, about a burger, but not when someone says it's okay to grab someone in the rear. Yeah, that's fine, but this isn't fine. So you see kind of where we have this like weird, like shifting way where our faith fits where we want it to fit and faith doesn't matter in other areas. Pfft, it's this, oh, but here it matters so much. So yeah, yeah, so yeah. Let's go ahead, as we're kind of in the Christian crazy, but still exiting the Christian crazy at the same time, let's go ahead and listen to Tony Perkins and his take on killing of the Iranian leader, Soleimani. You know, David, I think some people might be amazed, especially those who have not studied Scripture and are not in it on a regular basis. But there's, I would be hard-pressed to find anything that the Scripture does not speak to. Uh, it speaks to every aspect of life, including this issue of War. So I like how he enters this conversation with going ahead and saying that there's people that know their stuff and people that don't know their stuff. There's people that are in it, in it like, you know, scripture's like a hot tub. You kind of just get on in, get on into it. And there's those that don't really know this. And then he goes to say that, yes, there's nothing in the world that scripture can't tell us about. It covers every aspect of human life and existence. This is what one of the large problems that we see within conservative Christianity and the way that they tend to uh, hold scripture. Now, they believe that this is the divine, inspired, inerrant word of God, where essentially God, either, 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 either one of two ways, either God possessed people as they were writing down these books, or God used them as some sort of a weird, bizarre zombie avatar uh, or maybe a third one, God is whispering like dictation in their ears. Either way, either way. So, so scripture is, is perfect and holy and like it's God's literal, literal word, okay? And if it's his literal word and we view scripture as somehow a rule book and a book for how to live life. Now, not a book on how people have walked with God over centuries about how flawed people experience God in their own flawedness about people who did good stuff and did bad stuff, but still continued to walk uh, a road towards redemption with the Lord. Uh, no, that would be, that would be a lot more of an open-handed reading of things. No, no, no. But this is, this is, this is the dictated expressed words of God and not at all. If you kind of take that and tease it out, does God seem schizophrenic because uh, different voices, different, uh, literary methods of writing and uh, genres, um, different time periods, different perspectives. So, yeah, so Perkins, I know I'm not maybe enough in it in the hot tub sense, uh, but yes, I have studied this, my friend, uh, and I say that sarcastically. And I would go ahead and say that's a really damaging view of Scripture and a very limiting view of Scripture, and we're only in like two, his first 30 seconds, uh, to begin to believe that the Bible is all that exists. So essentially, once God was done with Scripture, he was like, that's all I need to say. I'm out of here. Peace out, folks. See ya at the second coming of Jesus. No, no. Now, Scriptures do tell us about God. They do tell us about the nature of God. They do tell us about the nature of humanity. They do give us a lot of things to be able to think about and, uh, and contemplate in how we live life. Now, do they speak to every situation of everything in life? 
No, but they're not mean meant to because there's us also walking with God in like the present tense. So if we have scripture where God has been in the past tense and how God has been with people in the past tense, then we also have, oh, I want to have in the present tense a relationship with God like these people did. I see God's nature and I'm gonna walk with God in the present tense and into the future tense here as we're walking with God. So there's this, there's this, there's this idea that the story is unfinished and that we're part of another chapter in the book. So we're writing our own stories with God. So we're able to see the past, where we've come from, but we also need to embody where we're at right now. And, and I bring this up because what I tend to see is that people don't want to use their brains. A lot of times within Christianity, we can point to what happened Old Testament-wise or point to what happened in a specific place, in a specific time, in a specific situation, and say, that will think for me. But we're not smart enough to be able to kind of come to this place where we're able to say, oh, hey, okay, um, I'm living in 2020. I have walked this long with the Lord. I see what God has done in other situations. Let me try to like extrapolate. Let me, let me even take this uh, to folks I'm in community with, other people that are wrestling with what, what's, what God is doing right now. And let's wrestle with this mutually together. You see, that is the Bible plus what's happening now. That's like the Bible plus reality. That's the Bible plus community. And see, that is a better reading of scripture as opposed to the Tony Perkins version. Well, most people don't know scripture the way I do <laughs> because it has an answer to everything, everything. Okay, it can answer a question everything. And my question would then be, why the Big Bang Theory? No, I'm not actually talking about creationism versus <laughs> evolution versus Big Bang Theory. I'm talking about the television show. Why for so long was it on the air? Why did so many like it, so many people like it? Because I would just say that really, uh, it's a very lowbrow sense of comedy and humor, and it really bothered me that so many people thought it was very funny because it's really not funny, and it just also continues to tell me how we elected Trump. Oh, many people are dumb and don't use their brains. Oh, <laughs> there we have it. There we have it. But can the Bible answer that question for me? Not really. Not really. I'm being an ass, but I'm being an ass on purpose because making statements like that, making statements like that tend to twist and warp Christianity into being something it's not supposed to be. So speaking about twisting and warping Christianity, they're going to continue their conversation and we'll continue ours as well. And when it is appropriate for a nation to defend itself, for a people to act as the president did last week. So what does the Word of God have to say about war? Well, that's right, Tony. The Bible, like you just said, speaks to almost every issue you can imagine. The Bible does uh, talk about war specifically. Uh, Scripture's clear uh, that the fund fundamental cause of conflict or war is our sinful, fallen human nature. We live in a Genesis 3 world. Uh, ver the verse that immediately comes to my mind is James uh, chapter 4, verse 1, where James actually says, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from the cravings that are at war within you? You desire and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. So again, yeah, the scripture talks a lot about war, but it also lets us see that all war itself 
is not intrinsically evil. Uh, as believers, we are at war with sin. We're at war with evil. Eh, hold a second. Hold a second. I, I was kind of tracking with him a little bit. I was kind of tracking with uh, Perkins Toady here just a little bit. But my issue was this. Is, is typically, especially within Christianity, when we just like to label stuff as sin. Uh, that sin ends up being this, like, this large covering for bad things that aren't in the spirit. No. Okay. So essentially what he was trying to get at, which, again, yes, we can use the blanket of sin for why war happens, but really I think we should speak about these on more, like, psychological and human terms. So uh, it happens because we're selfish, we're greedy, and also because we're fearful. I feel like we are, we are humans oftentimes can be a very impotent and fearful bunch of people. We can be a very selfish bunch of people. But when we are operating out of fear and operating out of selfishness, yes, sure, we can call that sin, but we're not operating out of, out of what we're supposed to be. And, and what I think begins to happen is when we only talk about Scripture in this like abstract realm, we're not really like grounding it within humanity. Yeah, why does war happen? Because we're either greedy or because we're... Honestly, we're fearful and we don't trust people that aren't like us. And that is a fundamental flaw within how a lot of people choose to act. But again, if we go back to Jesus, this idea that we're supposed to love others and love our enemies and be giving towards others, well, then that really kind of erases sin. And it's a very logical way of looking at that. To love other people, to give people the benefit of the doubt, to give people grace, to try to walk in a different way instead of a warring way. See, then that makes Scripture make sense. The way they're doing this is they're throwing around theological terms and, and they're doing this in a way that almost makes it abstract to where we are in the world today. But if we're able to say, instead of saying it's sin, no, it's because people literally are fearful, they're hateful, and they're selfish. See, that, jiv that jives very well with Jesus. And we don't have to get really, really too ethical or philosophical when we're speaking about this. But, 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 homeboy here is going to give us, tell us exactly why war is good and why Scripture tells us war is great. You go through the Bible, uh, the Old Testament actually sanctions war. Uh, you move to the New Testament, governments have a responsibility toward their citizens and are answerable to God for that. And so sometimes there are compelling reasons for going to war. I mean, all killing is tragic but sometimes it's necessary. So hold on. If we want to be, like, congruent, let's be cohesive here because we just have someone that's part of a, a pro-life organization <laughs> that just said this, that just said this, that all killing is tragic, but sometimes it's necessary. Again, I'm not getting that argument, but it's, it, again, it's, it's kind of this uh, theological hopscotch that we have here. This, this, this works here. This doesn't work here. This works here. This doesn't work here in what they're doing here. And if you want to notice, if you want to notice, what do they do here? We went from, okay, Old Testament, war is cool. New Testament, mm, skip the Gospels, but let's kind of have a little bit of justification over here, right? What are we skipping? What are we skipping? Who's the major person that's nonviolent, that, that preaches and kind of anchors the entirety of Christianity in the Bible? <laughs> I don't know. But you know, we just skipped Jesus. In justification for war, we just done skipped Jesus. So kind of ruminate on that one for just a tad. Just a tad. Because we're going to get back to their weird, weird, weird 
ethical and theological gymnastics. And those principles are what we look for for guidance. In fact, uh, St. Augustine, known as the father of modern Christianity, is often credited with uh, developing foundational biblical uh, premises of how national armed conflict should be viewed. Of course, later on, Thomas Aquinas built upon the writings of uh, Augustine. But there's really a, a... a theory here that has been developed that has guided nations for centuries. In fact, even in our own military academies until the Obama administration actually taught the just war theory. That's right. So it is called the just war theory, like you just mentioned, uh, really articulated by Augustine, uh, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, um, a lot of great names uh, have really thought through this deeply. And, and there are principles for how a nation can go about uh, conducting and engaging in warfare morally. So there's principles for that you need to think through when you're going to war, and then actually principles for when you're engaged in war and actually in conflict. So I'm going to use some of that argument that they had there to be able to kind of hop into this conversation that we're going to talk about um, nonviolence and why nonviolence matters. And uh, this is a story that, that kind of popped up at the, at the end of the year, and it hit reached national news. Um, and what happened was this. So a man shot and killed two people during a church service in, I'm not making this up, White Settlement, Texas. Isn't all of Texas a white settlement? I don't know. <laughs> so, yes. Uh, so, so a man got up, shot and killed two people during a church service, Um, And all that happened before two members of the church security team shot and killed him. And that led to me groaning in my own self to where I saw a bunch of conservative folks I know, like, oh, bringing back the the good guy with a gun argument. The good guy with a gun argument. And, And I've been a part of this kind of conversation in and out of different churches I've been involved with over the years. I remember when I was involved in a church plant. This is back uh, around right after 9-11. Well, I was involved in church plant before 9-11, but uh, I had this conversation uh, with a pastor and I. We'd run into a guy that was uh, in the area, and he was literally a church, like, he was a church security consultant. So this, again, so this goes back a ways. And it was to be able to, how do you make sure you arm your churches and make sure your churches are, you know, squared away and can defend yourself against an armed, I don't know. And, and. What bothered me then, what bothered me in my 20s, bothers me in my 40s. And it's the same argument that I know conservative Christians will continue to do, and churches will do this after this. They will have security officers that have guns and and things of this nature. And so what bothered me then, what bothers me now is this, is that if we are called to be a people of God, especially if we are going to have a church service that is supposed to be open to the public, open to the people, um, to be a place that they are, we are worshiping God. What place do, do instruments of war and violence have? Now, I know also oftentimes that, that uh, theologically speaking, the, the conservative Christians uh, will say that sin has no place it's in, around God. Somehow, like, God is, like, has a nut allergy to sin, where God's like, oh, oh, where's my EpiPen? Having this, and, and I think the problem that they get in this idea, especially, and I know we're jumping around theologically, but 
one of the issues that I have with, with that view, that sin has no place around God, it would tell me that God can't be around the sinner. So the presence of God can't be around the sinner. And see, I would say it's very wrong. I would say that the presence of sin or evil or selfishness, like we said earlier, like selfishness or, or fear, uh, which I, I believe is like a lot of the roots of that selfishness and fear are the roots of a lot of sin, have no place being around God, meaning that they would choose to opt out, which is very different by saying is that God, you know, feels icky and itchy and has an allergic reaction around sin. So I want to lay that out there. So then, if, if hypothetically we are having a, a worship service, why are we having a worship service where we are inherently fearing and not trusting in God and needing people to have guns around us so that we can worship and bless our guns while we're in church too? See, what I'm also saying is that these people are being driven by fear. And yes, have we had church shootings in America? Sure. Have we had nightclub shootings in America? Sure. Have we had concert shootings in America, school shootings in America? America has a problem with shootings. And, and I generally, again, my show, my opinion, do not believe that the answer is more guns. It's kind of a thing that you'd like tell your kids that, you know, two rights don't make a wrong. Well, that's essentially the argument of a bad guy with a gun gets neutralized with a good guy with a gun. And then I would circle back to saying, but who are we worshiping at church on Sunday? We're talking about Jesus. Uh, who is Tony Perkins uh, forgetting to mention, especially when him and his like little uh, underling are talking about just war theories and things of that nature? Yeah, we're kind of skipping the whole pacifist mold and make of Jesus, what Jesus taught us to be and to look like. The example that he told us to follow. So yes. And, 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 let's just not get too scriptural. Let's not get too, but we'll go ahead and read from Matthew 5, where Jesus said, you have heard that I, that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go a mile, go with him too. And give him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute against you. Because well, the problem here is, the problem here with all of these arguments that we're, that we're dealing with here, with whether it be guns, a lot of this is involving guns, yes, today, is, is that these ideas of just war or these ideas of having armed people in church buildings, they are, they are fundamentally anti-kingdom thinking. Now, they're very earthbound thinking. They're very human thinking. They're very, you know, conservative Christian thinking. But that's not the same as Jesus' kingdom of God thinking. And when we get into issues like this, there, there are limits to ethics. There are limits to ethical conversations and to philosophy because what ends up happening, we can sit around this, and I have friends that do this. I have friends that I love dearly that will love to sit and argue about theological positions, but they don't want to sit around and figure out, well, what the hell does this have to do with real life? 
I think Jesus was very clear on what does the hell does it have to do with real life because it, it struck me recently, and I know I'm being really weird and tangential today, but just run with me uh, if you're still hanging around, was that especially when Jesus, the reason Jesus spoke in parables was this. I feel like parables are actually word problems. If you know, like the ones we had that we hated, like in math class, like a train leaving Miami is going at this speed and a train leaving New York is going at this speed. At what point will they cross? Well, think about this. Parables are essentially that. Uh, and we like to get way deep and theological in this. I think these are literally Christian word problems. Why do we have word problems? Well, the word problem purpose in math class was, hey, you've learned all of these things. Do you know how to use them? Can you use these things you're learning in math in real-ish life? A word problem? It's like the Good Samaritan. We read this and be like, oh, it says deep theological significance. No, to the people that were listening to this, Jesus is teaching them a very simple lesson. <laughs> this is the ethics I'm giving you. You take care of this person. You love this person. Not because what it'll give you, not because what you believe your faith tells you it will do for you. You do this because it is the right thing to do. The right thing to do. And I believe for folks in here, and yet, you know, I'm going to piss a bunch of people off by saying this, but I do. I do believe that the road of nonviolence is the way to go. Do I hate guns? I, I don't. I'm not going to own one. But yes, should people be able to go out and shoot and hunt and do things of that nature? For, sure, fine. Go ahead and do this. But, but I would go as far to say, for many people that are gun owners, the primary reason for owning them, they would say is protection. And I would say that's kind of true, but it's really based out of fear. And that fear inherently tells us that somehow God is not in control. God is not in charge. That's what that fear, that sin leads us to do, it, to take matters into our own hands. And I, I stumbled onto this um, recently. And I, I'm just going to read some of this before we get to some, some delicious MLK <laughs> nuggets that we want to talk about. Um, but this was an article that I read by uh, Bo Hoffman. And... This is about him discovering the gospel of peace. And he says this, I used to carry a gun everywhere I went. I had my concealed carry permit. I didn't trust anyone, and I was always fearful. I felt as if it were my duty to protect my wife and myself at all times. So I always had a loaded, holstered gun on my hip. If I was at the movies, I watched people more than the film. At restaurants, I would identify the biggest threat and know where the exits were located. I always had a strategic plan for the use of lethal force. I would frequently awaken to a sound uh, in, in the house and immediately grab my handgun and a tactical flashlight to go, after, to go through my routine of, quote, clearing the house. And it was only four years ago. That was only four years ago. Now I never carry a gun, except when I'm hunting. I'm not opposed to guns, and I'm not fearful of them. But I have been trained properly how to handle guns, and I have a lot of practice. I've not become a liberal, and I'm not trying to eradicate guns. I still own guns, and I will still use them to hunt or do target shooting. My life isn't consumed with fear anymore. Fear used to be the driving factor in my faith. Fear that God hated me. I feared hell. I feared messing up, or else God would punish me. In reality, I believe that God despised all of humanity, and my view of God shaped my view of others. If God despised people because all of mankind was totally depraved, I felt the need to fear everyone and treat 
everyone as if they were a threat. And worse yet, if God really didn't love me because I was totally depraved, I'd better make sure it was someone else that was going to die and not me because I didn't know how it would end up, how I would end up in the eternal flames of God's wrath. But praise God that all that changed. I came to realize that God is just like Jesus completely, that we can know who God is and through the person of Jesus. And when I looked deeper at the life of Christ, not just of the proof text to use against those who were different than me, I realized that he was radically nonviolent and that his love of others led him to be fearless in the face of extreme turmoil. Jesus flipped the script on ancient law, telling us to never return to violence with violence and instead to love our enemies. Perfect love of Jesus cast out all fear in my life. And I'll skip down in this article a little bit. The peace and nonviolence that Jesus portrayed is juxtaposed to the violent revolution for which Judas longed. Judas was from a violent tribe of men who were guerrilla warriors fighting against the Roman Empire. They wanted to see Israel fully restored to its independence and freedom. In the Garden of Gethsemane, after Judas sold out Jesus, it's almost as if Judas attempted to see whether Jesus would finally become violent, the violent savior for whom he had hoped. Judas saw Jesus' miracles. Judas knew he could walk on water and multiply food and feed thousands. Judas knew the masses longed for someone like Jesus who cared for the oppressed. Judas knew Jesus talked about setting captives free. Well, Judas and the Israelites were captives, and Judas was ready to see Jesus live up to his word. And as Judas kissed Jesus, I imagined him turning by Jesus' side, almost who suggested Jesus, quote, your back is up against the wall now. Your life or theirs. Let him have it. But Jesus didn't. In fact, when Peter pulled the sword and cut off one of the Romans' ears, Jesus rebuked Peter and told him, all who live by the sword will die by the sword and heal the soldier's ear. Jesus refused to resort to violence against those who were coming to capture him and instead showed them the love by healing one of his captors. And I feel like that is the biggest place that we need to be at within Christianity is living fearlessly. I mean, the idea of being a Christian means that you are called to be a little version of Christ. As Jesus said, to pick up your cross and follow me daily. Jesus wasn't talking to, about jewelry to wear around your neck. He wasn't talking about bling. No. He was saying, be willing to die for me. Because the kingdom of God works in a different kind of currency. And the way that real change happens comes through nonviolence and different actions because those are the things that end up being audacious to a watching world. And I know we can get caught up in arguing about, well, just war theories and all this other stuff, and I'm just going to go back to the nonviolent pacifist version of Jesus that I know. For someone to lay their life down for someone else, it's not only a statement. It tends to mess other people up when they see it because it doesn't make sense. And in that day, in this day today, uh, when I'm recording this, uh, you'll probably be listening to it at a, at a later point, but on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, I want us to focus on that nonviolence and why it matters and why that is the way of Jesus and why that should continue to drive us and why that should continue to matter. Because churches don't need armed guards. 
because that is simply just acting out of fear. And love, love, love casts out fear. I don't want to focus on that in this weird world that we're in where, where it seems that we are, we are caught up intrinsically within violence, whether it's physical or even verbal violence, where we're very divided as a country. And we're divided now just like we were back in the time of Dr. King. And I wanted just to lay these out before we listen to some of his words, too, on nonviolence. But these are the six principles of nonviolence that are the fundamental tenets that Dr. King's, uh, of his philosophy of nonviolence that was described in his book, Stride Towards Freedom. And the six principles are these. Principle one, nonviolence is a way of life for courageous people. It is active nonviolent resistance to evil. It is aggressively spiritually, mentally, and emotionally. Principle two, nonviolence seeks to win friendship and understanding. The end result of nonviolence is redemption and reconciliation. The purpose of nonviolence is the creation of the beloved community. Principle three, nonviolence seeks to defeat injustice, not people. Nonviolence recognizes that evildoers are also victims and are not evil people. The violent resistor seeks to defeat evil, not people. Principle four, nonviolence holds that suffering can educate and transform. Nonviolence accepts suffering without retaliation. Unearned suffering is redemptive and has tremendous educational and transforming possibilities. Principle five, nonviolence chooses love instead of hate. Nonviolence resists violence of spirit as well as the body. Nonviolent love is spontaneous, unmotivated, unselfish, and creative. Principle six, nonviolence believes that the universe is on the side of justice. The nonviolent resistor has a deep faith that justice will eventually win. Nonviolence believes that God is a God of justice. I hear these, I read these, even in my own soul, I wanted to say amen. Because these, these are the tenets of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is one that is built on nonviolence. It is built on love. It is built on believing the best in people that we can't see the best in. Because others believe in us. It believes that tomorrow can be a better today if we continue to walk in our principles of nonviolence. We continue to walk in the ways of love, radical love, radical love that the world needs now more than ever. So with those tenets still in our mind, I want us to listen to Dr. Martin Luther King during an interview talking about his education, his road, and his journey that brought him to a place of nonviolence and why that matters then, why that matters today, and why that needs to matter into our future. So here's Dr. King. So after deciding to boycott the buses, we decided that the movement needed some discipline and dignity, and a boycott in and of itself would be 
a very dangerous thing if it didn't have some guidance. And after thinking through this, the emphasis on Christian love came into being, along with the whole Gandhian technique of nonviolent resistance. Christianity, Christianity and Gandhiism. How do you mean? How did you apply that, Dr. King? Well, I mean this, that uh, if we think of a boycott uh, merely as an economic squeeze, uh, we were not boycotting. And I, I like to think of our movement here in Montgomery as more than a boycott, because a boycott is suggestive merely of an economic squeeze, and that can be a very unchristian thing. Uh, it can be immoral. You anticipate, really, a question I was going to ask you, how you would reconcile the Christian ethic with an economic boycott. Mm -hmm. Well, I think if it stops with the boycott, and it doesn't have the element of love and nonviolent resistance, it is opposed to the Christian religion. I face this problem at a very early stage in the whole struggle. How could this method be reconciled with the Christian faith? And uh, at points, uh, I started thinking that this was a method used by persons at points who, who were seeking to defy the law of the land. And all of these things came to my mind. And then I reasoned that what we were actually doing was not exactly working on a negative, trying to put a company out of business. That was never our aim. We were, we were not seeking to put the bus company out of business but to put justice in business. We were dealing with a positive point. And I also reasoned that what we uh, were doing turned out to be uh, a very Christian act because uh, the system of segregation tends to set up false standards and it scars the personality of the individuals of both races. And from that I came to see that the longer we continue to accept it without uh, opposing it in some form, we fail to be our brother's keeper. Because as long as we sit in the back of the bus, it tends to give the, the Negro a false sense of inferiority. And so long as white persons sit in the front of the bus only, it tends to give them a false sense of superiority. And I felt that some leavening reality should come into being so men would live together as brothers and forget about distinctions. And that became, to my mind, a very moral element. And I came to see that what we were doing was actually massive non-cooperation and not so much a boycott. And you feel really that actually an acceptance of what you regard as evil is in essence a promotion of evil? Is that the under that Am I correct in understanding this was the basic philosophical thinking on your part? Very definitely. I think it is just as bad to passively accept evil as it is to inflict it. What directed you to the ministry, or perhaps more pertinently for the purpose of this discussion, what directed you to Gandhiism and to nonviolent resistance or influence? My intellectual odyssey to uh, pilgrimage to nonviolence uh, is a rather long thing, but briefly I can state it, I think. The first thing that uh, came to my mind in this area was my reading of Thoreau's essay on civil disobedience when Thoreau. I was a college student. And of course that fascinated me a great deal. It was 
uh, one of the best things that I had read at that time. Later I went to theological seminary. There I came in contact with the whole stream of what is known as the social gospel, which was headed in this country by Rauschenbusch, who taught at one of the theological seminaries many years ago. And of course the emphasis there is that the Christian religion must not only be concerned about saving the individual soul, but also dealing with the social evils that corrupt the soul. So that I am, I have been deeply influenced by the social gospel. And this caused me to become concerned about finding a method whereby social evils could be uh, removed from society. And I think at that time I read most of the major social philosophers and social philosophers. Uh, I read the works of Marx and the whole communistic emphasis. And from the very beginning I was never moved by communism and its uh, suggestions as to how to remove the problems that we confront in society. And Gandhi? Pardon? Where did you come to Gandhi? I came to Gandhi in the same setting, in theological seminar days, I had heard of Gandhi, but I remembered hearing a message by the president of Howard University, Dr. Mordecai Johnson, who had just returned from India. He spoke in Philadelphia on his trip to India and the whole philosophy of Gandhi and uh, passive and nonviolent resistance. Now, I was so deeply moved by the message that I went away and bought several books on the Gandhian, uh, on Gandhi and Gandhian technique. And at that point, I became deeply influenced by Gandhi, never realizing that uh, I would live in a situation where it would be useful and meaningful. And actually used it in, actually would apply it in yes, this country. That's right. Those are good words from Dr. King for us to kind of ruminate on and contemplate on this coming week. So as I send you out here from <laughs> this broadcast, just a reminder that you can catch us on podcast at www.snarkyfaith.com. Uh, you can also reach out, as I do. I love, I love it. I got a few letters this week, too, that I corresponded with folks with. Uh, if you have questions, if you have criticisms, <laughs> if you want to tell me I'm a heretic, uh, or if you want to have an interesting conversation, you can always reach me at questions at snarkyfaith.com. I welcome all of it. But in the spirit of Dr. Martin Luther King, I send you out from the show the holiest amount of grace and peace that you may change the world, that we may leave it better than we received it. And I also send you out in the holiest amount of snark so that you may be able to whew, walk the hard road ahead of you, but still smile. WCOM is listener-supported community radio, and Snarky Faith is only possible through our sponsors. Lumen, a spiritual community of seekers, sojourners, question-askers, doubters, and skeptics, is a collective of fellow travelers that embrace the truth that all of life is sacred, hope is real, and tomorrow can be a better day than today. All are welcome. You can find...